You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Eliel makes perhaps the most dramatic entrance in Tanakh. We can legitimately describe him as bursting upon the scene. For Leo is not born, has no history, and introduces himself by making the radically presumptuous claim, by the life of God there will be no do or reign except by my word. One cannot help but notice that he seems to be emphasizing his own role unnecessarily. Does the reign not depend ultimately on God's decision rather than Elio's? Profit anything more than the voice, however personal and subjective, that conveys God's decisions to humanity? And this initial episode is typical, not anomalous. Elio forces God's hand time and time again, and at times openly defies God. Yet his career ends with his greatness unchallenged, and with God showing him every sign of favor. Why does God favor and choose such an independent spokesman? We will approach this issue by exploring several reckonings with what I see as a central issue of this episode, Namely, why does Elio take the task of denying rain upon himself rather than taking it upon God's prophets as a class? Why just him? Why not, every, why not all the Nivean? Um, so here's one possible solution. Elio is contrasting his powers with those of the prophets of Baal. He understands that he cannot, at least at this point, compel the idolatrous prophets into permitting a direct challenge between Baal and Hashem, but he can establish his own credibility. So this episode is just a necessary precursor to the direct challenge, um, which takes place several chapters later in Har Carmel. Once he establishes that he's the Navi Hashem, then he can challenge them. Um, second possibility. Eliel is at this point the only public prophet of Hashem because these devils wiped out everybody else. Perhaps he feels that if he left it as a possibility that other prophets could undo his decree, whatever other prophets there were would be tortured by the king and queen until they agreed to do so. Possibility number three. There were false prophets of Hashem around, in addition to idolatrous prophets. Any one of those false prophets could at any time declare in Hashem's name that the drought was ending, thus making Elio's later accurate declaration seem just a lucky guess. Only by personalizing the test, by saying it's a question of my credibility, not of the prophets in general, could Elio make sure that fraudulent prophetic pretenders would not undermine his test and leave his public jaundiced and cynical by the time he agreed to end the drought. Solution number four. Elio was aware of and willing to publicly acknowledge the legitimacy of many contemporary prophets. But while he acknowledged them, he didn't trust them not to feel sympathy for the suffering of the drought-ridden Jews. Elio understands that the drought is his own initiative. He believes that Hashem will support his decision. But he realizes that the divine will could respond in many different ways to the situation he faces. In other words, Elio makes the rain dependent on his word, not on God's word, to limit God's freedom of action. To prevent God from ending the test early through the voice of another prophet. Trust my judgment, he says to God, or fire me. The fourth suggestion seems to me to fit best with both the text and its Talmudic interpretation. The Midrash records that in the end, God had to force, or in some versions, trick Elio into ending the drought. There are three keys in heaven, we are told, those of birth, of resurrection, and of rain. Human beings may possess at most one of these at a time. Elio is overcome by guilt, or perhaps by moral anger, the sudden death of the son of his benevolent Sarfatit Hostis. As a result, he asks for the key to resurrection and must give up the key to reign. The implication of this Midrash is that Hashem found a third way. He neither fired Elio, nor ultimately did he trust Elio's judgment. This generates an inherently unstable situation, and as would be expected, Elio soon finds a way of simultaneously challenging God and the Jews again. He summons the prophets of Baal to a challenge match atop Har Carmel. Each of them slaughters a cow and prays to the respective God to set it afire. 
The Midrash notes that Eliyahu thus violates the prohibition of bringing sacrifices outside the temple, meaning that whatever the short-term consequences of his deeds, in the long term he almost certainly makes it impossible for the Malchei Yisrael to eliminate that practice, um, which becomes the bane of many later prophets. But Eliyahu does not give God any real options. Once again, he forces God to choose between backing him up and firing him. Eliyahu's position vis-a-vis God is stronger this time, as because Hashem backed him up regarding the drought, he has irrevocably bound his credibility up with Eliyahu's. So God sends the flame and consumes the slaughtered cow, and the awestruck people declare that Hashem is the Lord, Hashem is the Lord, and massacre the prophets of Baal. But the next day, Ezebel tells Eliyahu that his life is forfeit, and we see in her words no sense that murdering Eliyahu will generate any significant popular outrage. We next see Eliyahu in the wilderness in suicidal depression. This time, at least superficially, he does not seek to limit God's options, but to take away his own. Take my life, he asks God, for I am no better than my predecessors. What generates Eliyahu's depression? Presumably not the threat to his life. Ezebel has been slaughtering all God's prophets for years. Rather, he's depressed because the failure of the Mount Carmel challenge indicates that his whole career has been a mistake. Above all, Eliyahu is the prophet of the dramatic, charismatic gesture. His opening scene sets the tone for his entire career. Har Carmel was the ultimate dramatic gesture. It worked perfectly, and nonetheless, the next day it seems that the world is unaffected. Let us take a moment to understand the meaning of Eliyahu's reliance on the dramatic. His goal, as he memorably phrases it during the challenge, is to force B'nai Israel to choose between extremes. How long will you stand on the threshold of two gates? In other words, Eliyahu believes that the people deep down understand that God is God, but are unwilling to face the implications of this understanding by posing the choice starkly, by making them understand that their behavior denies what they understand to be true. Eliyahu thinks he can make the gods commit, the Jews commit to God unconditionally, but now he sees that he cannot make them sustain that commitment. So this time he does not tell God, trust me or fire me, but rather, fire me, you trusted me, and I failed. Once again, though, God does not fire him. Instead, he sends an angel with food and takes Eliyahu through a very explicit reenactment of Moshe Rabbeinu's time on Har Sinai. Eliyahu goes 40 days and 40 nights without water and ends up in Har Chareth, Mount Sinai, in the cave where God hid Moshe while his glory passed. A voice comes to Eliyahu saying, What are you doing here, Eliyahu? Eliyahu understands that he is being asked for self-justification. His answer brilliantly captures who he is. At the same time, it makes us wonder whether the request that God fires him was not just another dramatic gesture, a plea for reassurance rather than a recognition of error. He says, I have been very zealous for God, Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have abandoned your covenant, they have destroyed your altars, and put your prophets to the sword. I am left alone, and they seek to take my life. We get a clear sense that his life is not worthless, that when push comes to shove, his failure is their fault. Let us not rush to condemn Elio here. He believes in free will. In other words, he believes that nothing he can do um, will necessitate that his audiences make the right decision, just as nothing can deprive them of responsibility for the wrong decisions. He can legitimately believe that he gave B'nai Yisrael the best chance of making the right decision, but they nonetheless failed. God responds by showing Elio a complex vision. First there is a hurricane, then an earthquake, then a wildfire, but God is not in any of these. And finally, a quiet, delicate voice. God then repeats his question word for word. What are you doing here, Elio? The simplest understanding of this tableau is that Elio's dramatic path is represented by the three powerful natural phenomena whereas the quiet, delicate voice represents an alternative and preferred prophetic method. Eliyahu res- responds to God's repeated question by repeating his previous answer, word for word. The vision, so far as we can tell, 
leaves him unchanged. Let us explore this interaction further. My student Yeshua Ravenstein, argues that here, with exquisite irony, God adopts Eliyahu's own method to instruct him. The reenactment of Moshe's experience, the powerful vision, all these are dramatic, uh, dramatic demonstrations, not quite delicate voices, and yet they leave Eliyahu unchanged. Perhaps, Yeshua suggested, the point of this whole episode was to make Eliyahu realize that dramatic moments do not change people. Realizing that God's drama had not changed him, even momentarily, he would become more sympathetic to the people's failure to be changed by his dramas. I think Yeshua's perception is spectacular, but I also think, think his suggestion is caught in its own ironic web. Eliyahu understands that he is unchanged because God's educational method was deliberately flawed, and not because he made the free choice to reject God's message, then the method has not failed, and we are back where we started. I accept the irony, but I'm not convinced Eliyahu got it or could reasonably have been expected to get it. Another student of mine, Rabbi Chaim Strauchler, suggests that Eliyahu thought the whole vision was a test of his determination. He repeats his justification, his self-justification word for word because he thinks he is supposed to. His repetition is a repentance, a tshuva, for his earlier despair. My own sense is Eliyahu understands that he is supposed to change, but consciously refuses to do so. Let me note here that this is a long-standing opinion of mine. My chavrut Eliyahu Taitz and I argued about this while I was still in yeshiva. Eliyahu Taitz thought that Eliyahu Navi simply failed to understand what God wanted, but I refused to accept this. I further admit that my refusal had a deep emotional basis for I identified with Eliyahu, especially in that moment of, as I understood it, defiance. During my college and smicha years, I would frequently read the chapter to renew my determination in the face of seemingly overwhelming opposition. This was, however, not a psychologically original experience on my part. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch records that he would reread this chapter once a month, and his foundational pedagogic work, Chorev, is named after Leo's experience. We will encounter a Hirsch's spectacular counter-reading of this episode later. One prefers not to identify with figures who just don't get it. Leo is a self-described zealot, and a large part of zealotry is absolute and unshakable conviction, which, with apologies to modernity, is not always a bad thing. Another biblical use of, this, of the word zealotry indicates that it can involve a dedication to the best interests of someone who may put other interests above his own. When Yoshua urges Moshe to condemn Eldad and Medad for their temerity in continuing to prophesy in Moshe's lifetime, or midrashically for prophesying that Moshe will die before reaching the Promised Land, Moshe's somewhat bemused response is, are you being zealous for me? The other prominent zealot in Tanakh, Pinchas, seems clearly to be praised for his zealotry. His killing of Zimri and Cosby successfully aborts a raging divine plague, and God himself grants him a covenant of eternal priesthood, Brit Kunat Olam. Thus Pinchas' zealotry, as opposed to Eliyahu's, is effective. Nonetheless, the Midrash identifies Pinchas as Eliyahu. This Midrashic identification is based both on the term Kanoi, zealot, and by the suddenness of Eliyahu's appearance, as noted above, he is never born, and the absence of Pinchas' death, although he seems to remain prominent throughout the leadership of Yehoshua. We could treat this as simply a formulaic application of what Yitzchak Heinemann called conservation of personalities, a method of Agadah. I think, however, that such a treatment would be superficial, especially as conservation of personalities usually identifies a bit player with a prominent figure rather than identifying two prominent figures with, the, with each other. The Midrashis, not to mention Rolbag, who endorses this identification in his commentary, knew full well that Pinchas and Eliyahu's careers were markedly different. Whatever their motivation for identifying the two figures, they must have had an account of the differences. Let us now make a fuller accounting of those differences. 
We have already noted that Pinchas' zealotry is effective, whereas Elio's is not. We might say more sharply that Pinchas' zealotry saves many lives at the cost of two, whereas Elio's zealotry gener- generates a massacre, and he seems to want yet more deaths. Let us add that God describes Pinchas as a zealot, whereas Elio is self-described as a Kanai. My student Aaron Ross notes that Pinchas is zealous spontaneously, whereas Elio's zealotry is implemented through elaborate plans. Finally, so I might reformulate that by saying that Elio seems to be a constant zealot. Finally, Pinchas is rewarded for his zealotry, whereas Tanakh describes God's reaction to Elio's self-description with real sharpness. Go, return to your way through the desert to Damascus. When you arrive, you will anoint Hazael, king of Aram, and Yehu ben Nimshi, king of Israel, and you will anoint Elisha ben Shaphat of Avel Mecholah as prophet in your stead. The Midrash alertly rephrases the ending as, I don't want your prophecy. In other words, Elio is fired, finally, for his zealotry. How do the Midrashists account for these differences when they identify Pinchas and Elio? Why do they bother? My contention is that they must have developed an integrated, holistic vision of the life of Pinchas and Elio. Let us return to and examine more closely God's reaction to Pinchas' zealotry. We mentioned that he grants him a brit kuinatulam, the covenant of eternal priesthood. This seems an appropriate reward. But God also informs Moshe, Behold, I am giving him my covenant of peace, which seems less character appropriate. Zealots rarely look forward to lives of peace and tranquility. Furthermore, the Midrash claims that Pinchas does not become an ordinary priest, but rather assumes the office of Meshuach Milchama, war priest. We next meet him leading the Jewish forces into battle against Midian. What kind of job is that for somebody with God's covenant of peace? Then, at the end of Sefer Yoshua, he serves as Grand Inquisitor as the community investigates whether the tribes on the east bank of the Jordan have committed idolatry. While he absolves them, the sense we get is that he was appointed because he could be counted on to lead the enforcers if they were, if they were guilty. He is then identified by the Midrash as the high priest who serves as the oracle of Hashem during the civil war between Benjamin and the other tribes that concludes Sefer Shoftim, the book of Judges. Hashem's instruction to the tribes, conveyed through Pinchas, are to attack and attack again. Finally, another Midrash, a Midrash which deserves to be widely publicized in that it demonstrates that the Midrashites got it, that they understood it to some degree shared the feminist critique of patriarchal society. Sums up Pinchas' character in less than attractive fashion. Um, in, in Judges, we learn that Yiftach made an oath to sacrifice to God the first living being emerging from his house upon a successful return from battle. To his shock and dismay, his daughter was first out of the house to greet him. With a heavy heart, Yiftach sacrifices his daughters. His daughter. The simple sense of the words is that he killed her. Ramban, however, suggests that he only forbade her from marrying, but that the text treats this as equivalent to murder. His reading has much in both text and context to recommend it. Midrashists wonder, though, why Yiftach didn't simply have his vow annulled, as halacha permits. They don't address an even more obvious halachic question, namely why the vow was binding at all when it required violating the prohibition against murder and vows to perform illegal acts are halachic nullities. But we'll leave that aside. Um, so, so they respond that Yiftach, as the political leader, felt that only the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, had sufficient stature to annul his vow. So he sent a message to the Kohen Gadol asking him to come. The Kohen Gadol, however, the high priest, thought that Yiftach should come to him. And they were, unable, they were unable to resolve this dispute. The Midrash sums up, between the two of them, the girl was lost. Was the high priest? Pinchas. So in the aftermath of his initial act of zealotry, Pinchas becomes war priest, grand inquisitor, 
and a man so insistent on the dignity of his office that he has no concern for collateral casualties. How do we square this portrait with his having received God's covenant of peace? I'd like to suggest that Midrash makes the following claim. Zealots are good, but dangerous. A zealous who, does something, who gets something right does wonders, but habitual zealots will eventually get something important wrong. So God's initial reaction to Pinchas is, great, you have done well and merited a great reward. Don't do it again. Cement and emphasize this point. God announces that he is giving, notain, his covenant of peace to Pinchas. The choice of verb is significant, as covenants are more often established by the consult of all parties involved. One is curate a covenant than given. Although there's one other example in Breshit Yud Zayin Bet. Genesis 17.2. Let me therefore suggest the following as Midrashic history. Pinchas kills Zimri and Kazbi, and God approves, but immediately offers him his covenant of peace, lest his zealotry metastasize. Pinchas turns it down. His identity is bound up with his zealotry. Over time, as God, Kivyachol, watches nervously, he becomes war priest, and signs of incipient disaster emerge in the episode of the Iftach. Pinchas gradually becomes Eliyahu. At Har Carmel, he makes the long-feared mistake. Har Carmel is a disaster. People die, and no one is changed. So God takes Eliyahu to Chorev. He hopes that Eliyahu will be influenced simply by the historical parallel to Moshe, who argued with God on behalf of the Jews rather than against them. As the Midrash puts it, Moshe sought the honor of the father and the son, but Eliyahu only sought the honor of the father. Perhaps God also hoped Eliyahu would learn from his own mistakes. Eliyahu Dessler argues that a key message of the Exodus narrative is that people are never really changed by dramatic one-shot experiences. If the revelation at Sinai, following on the heels of the ten plagues, could not prevent the golden calf from occurring almost immediately, how could Eliyahu expect his showmanship at Mount Carmel to seriously affect Baal worship? But Eliyahu is unmoved. So God takes him to the cave, and via the vision offers him the covenant of peace one more time. And Eliyahu turns it down again. Two strikes, and he's out. The last verses of Malachi, however, seem to present a very different view of Eliyahu. Behold, I am sending Eliyahu the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will return the hearts of fathers to sons and the hearts of sons to fathers, lest I come and smite the land utterly. Here Eliyahu is presented as a figure of peace, almost an anti-zealot. In Midrash, Eliyahu's post-biblical career is almost always described in terms compatible with that verse. Eliyahu brings peace and comfort, recognizes the significance of comedians, etc. That is one version of history. Sorry, um... I suggest that the Midrashists posited that Eliyahu has offered the covenant of peace a third time in heaven. And this time he accepts. One version of history, it resolves many difficulties, as we have shown, but also generates some new questions. First, why does God take so long to fire Eliyahu, if we can, in retrospect, see the danger signs all along? Second, Eliyahu as a purely biblical figure is not consistently without compassion. He argues with God on behalf of the widow who hosts him, for example. How does that episode fit with the Midrash's claim that he cared only for the honor of the Father? Perhaps these two questions answer one another. Perhaps Eliyahu's compassion finally disappears in the crushing aftermath of Har Carmel. But they have also been used as the basis for what we can call alternate biographies, or alternative biographies of Eliyahu. One alternative is offered by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, chief, present chief rabbi of England. He notes that while in the cave on Mount Chorev God is not in the whirlwind, in Sefer Yov God does appear out of a whirlwind. Rabbi Sachs accordingly argues that God does not reject Eliyahu in Toto at Chorev, but at most points out that Mount Carmel was an error. Indeed, Eliyahu might well have remembered that God originally appeared to Moshe at Harsinai out of the flame, and his public appearance there was accompanied by loud sounds. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch offers a, more, a far more radical rereading. He suggests that the point of this vision 
was not to reject Eliyahu's path, but to reassure him of his necessity. The verse in Malachi teaches us that Eliyahu comes before the Messiah, that Eliyahu is the harbinger of redemption. That, says Refresh, is precisely the message of the vision, that the quiet, delicate voice cannot come before the hurricane, earthquake, and wildfire have passed. Eliyahu is depressed because he cannot see the results of his work, so God shows him that his work is a necessary preparation for redemption. Indeed, while the revelation at Sinai may not have worked in the sense of making the whole population permanently faithful to Hashem, would anyone argue that it was unnecessary or counterproductive? In Refresh's reading, the command to anoint Eliyahu is not a rejection is not a rejection, but a confirmation. God uses it to tell Elio that his work will in fact live on. If any, indeed, Elisha is, if anything, a less compassionate figure than Elio. And the text describes his role as that of killing those Baal worshippers who escaped the sword of Chazal and Yehu, Elio's anointing as kings of Aram and Israel, respectively. Refresh's reading has several other textual advantages. First, Elio's biblical career does not end after this episode. Indeed, it has not yet reached its halfway point. Second, why does Hashem send the angel to revive Elio in the wilderness if in fact he is not better than his ancestors and it would be better for his career to be ended? Let us assume that there is some tension between God and Elio in the prophetic relationship, that God regularly seeks to moderate Elio's zealotry. We set that possibility up through a reading of the life of Pinchas, but it can also emerge from the Elio story itself. For example, after Elio declares the drought, God sends him to places where he will see the suffering as decree is inflicted presumably to make him aware of the consequences of his passions. Even Refresh could admit that Hashem's overall endorsement of Elio is not without its discomforts. What drives Elio in this relationship? What makes him either so sure of himself, or else so consumed by his uncertainties, that he feels compelled to challenge him? We noted earlier that in the scene of Elio is reenacting an encounter between Moshe and God. In that encounter, Moshe asked to see God's glory, his kavod. According to the Midrash, that meant that Moshe asked why bad things happen to good people, and why good things happen to bad people. For Moshe, and probably for most of us, the more difficult question of that pair was the first, why the righteous suffer. It is hard to imagine a book entitled Why Good Things Happen to Bad People being a runaway bestseller. I suspect that this is because we live in a culture that is fundamentally optimistic about human nature, which assumes that the vast majority of people have not behaved sufficiently badly to deserve failure in the pursuit of happiness. But it is possible to argue that justifying the the suffering of the righteous is simple, whereas the success of the wicked is a theological monstrosity. Let me illustrate and then explain why. A famous Talmudic story tells of God taking Moshe into Rabbi Akiva's classroom. Moshe is impressed by Rabbi Akiva and asks to see the reward prepared for such a man. God shows him Rabbi Akiva's flesh being sold in the marketplace. Moshe explains, this is Torah and this is its reward. God replies, be silent. So it arose in my mind. Rabbi Leo Dessler whom we have met before, connects the story to Midrash, cited by Rashi in his commentary to the Torah, which explains why the first chapter of Genesis always uses the name Elohim for God, whereas the second chapter uses Hashem Elohim. Elohim is taken to refer to God's attribute of justice, whereas Hashem refers to his attribute of mercy. Says the Midrash, It arose in God's mind to create the world in accordance with justice, but he saw that it would not survive, so he made mercy a partner in creation. Says Rav Dessler, The inclusion of mercy in creation is not ideal, because divine mercy erodes the, the dignity of humanity. In a world run in accordance with strict justice, every human moral decision has real and lasting consequences. Mercy means that God will ignore some of our decisions and some of our actions. Rabbi Akiva's reward was the chance to live, however briefly and ultimately unsuccessfully, in a world of strict justice. Thus God replied to Moshe's challenge by referring him to what arose in his mind at the time of creation. 
Firstly, unlike justice, is random. One of my high school students would regularly complain that I gave him lower grades on a test for the same answers as his peers. My reply would be that he had gotten exactly the number of points those answers deserved, but that I had been merciful with the other students. He would then demand the same degree of mercy, whereupon I would reply that it was of the essence of mercy that it was not deserved, and therefore could not be demanded or held accountable to any standard. In other words, bad things may happen to good people because, in a just world, who of us deserves better? But good things happen to bad people when, just, when justice is arbitrarily replaced by mercy. Elio was deeply offended by the arbitrary nature of mercy. He demands consistency of God. If you require these things, you must enforce them, or our choices are not meaningful and dignified. In Midrash, however, Elio becomes the reconciler of opposites. He is, first of all, the person who lives in heaven, who is simultaneously an inhabitant of the upper and lower worlds. The verse in Malachi tells us that he will reconcile the generations. He also appears at circumcisions, a, mo- a moment of great generational tension, and immediately after Shabbat, when the borders between sacred and profane blur. Finally, at the Seder, we open the door to shouter imprecations at murderous pagans, but meanwhile Leo comes in, underscoring that to attack requires leaving our fortifications, and thus makes us vulnerable. I owe this insight to my friend Shoshana Gelfin. This is even more true when the battlefield is spiritual or intellectual. Perhaps the Midrash understands that only Elio could play this role. When the idealistic among us are counseled to moderate, we, we, often correctly, suspect that the apostles of moderation have no understanding of idealism. But the world cannot survive strict justice, and as Elio comes to tell us that, so Elio comes to tell us that, while he of all people understands the powerful attraction of consistent idealism, he has learned that mercy and ambiguity have legitimate roles to play. May we successfully learn that lesson without in the process forgetting our ideals. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.